Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on the book of Revelation, and to that end, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11 as we read the verses 7 to 14. Hear God's holy word. When they, the reference there is to the two witnesses, finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, when referring to the Church of Jesus Christ, Theologians often distinguish between the church triumphant and the church militant. The church triumphant is the church in heaven. She's called triumphant because she has triumphed over sin, the world, and Satan. The church militant is the church on earth, and she's called the militant church because she's engaged in battle against sin, the world, and Satan. But this battle is very costly. It will involve persecution and even death. And that is precisely what our Lord is teaching us in our text passage today. Revelation 11, the verses 7 to 14. Now, as we saw the last time, these verses form part of an interlude before the sounding of the seventh trumpet in verses 15 to 19. And this interlude consists of two parts. In the first part, in chapter 10, John sees a mighty angel with a little book or scroll in his hand. And this scroll contains the judgments that are still to come upon the earth. And John had to take this scroll and eat it, which he also did. And as he did, it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but later became bitter. In the second part of this interlude, John sees a vision of the two witnesses, which, as we saw the last time, may be two actual persons, but are probably better viewed as a representation of the church. 
And to these two witnesses, God gave power to prophesy 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. They also had power to devour their enemies with fire from their mouth, to shut the windows of heaven so that no rain would fall to the earth, to turn the waters into blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desired, which is another way of saying that through the preaching of the word, the church has the power to call down judgments on the unrepentant and unbelieving world for its opposition to God and his people. And so here we see the church militant fighting against the world by the sword of the word. But as we'll see, these attacks will not go unanswered. The world, spurred on by Satan himself, will attack the church, and she will be persecuted even unto death. Now with this in mind, and God's help, let's consider this part of the vision under this theme, the persecution of the two witnesses. And we'll consider, first of all, their demonic adversary, secondly, their disturbing treatment, and thirdly, their unexpected victory. The two witnesses representing the witnessing church have been prophesying for 1260 days, which as we've said is 42 months or three and a half years. Well, now John says they were finished. Everything they had to say had been said. The sowing was over. It was now time for the harvest. Sadly, however, the word preached did not have the desired effect. In fact, it only aroused opposition. We read in verse 7 that when the two witnesses had finished preaching, that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now this is the first time we read of the beast in the book of Revelation. Now he appears later on in other chapters as well. But here he, here he appears for the very first time. So who or what is this beast? Well, this image of a beast harkens back to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. There Daniel predicts the rise and fall of four great empires, which we now know as Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Each of these empires was represented in Daniel 7 by a deadly beast. The Babylonian Empire was represented by a lion, the Medo-Persian Empire by a bear, the Greek Empire by a leopard, and the Fourth Empire, the Roman Empire, was represented by a terrifying and dreadful beast with iron teeth and ten horns, probably because this empire was the most powerful and vicious. And so with this as background, it's likely that the beast in Revelation 11 represents the power of the state. But this beast wields the power of the state not for good, as it was intended, but rather for evil. And we know that because, first of all, it's a beast, which by its very nature is threatening. Secondly, it proceeds from the bottomless pit, which represents hell. And thirdly, it is intent on destroying the church. Now, there have been many such beasts throughout history. During the first century A.D., the Jewish Sanhedrin stoned the first martyr, Stephen, to death. It also authorized Saul to go to Damascus and arrest Christians there and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. Later on, the Roman government persecuted Christians, especially under Emperor Nero and Diocletian. 
Christians were rounded up by the thousands, thrown to the lions, and burned at the stake. From the 7th to the 11th centuries, even up to the late 17th century, Christian Europe was crushed under the weight of several waves of Islamic invasions. Churches were plundered, Christian women were raped, Christian men were killed, priests and monks were tortured and killed, towns and villages were pilfered, whole swaths of Europe were occupied, including almost all of Spain, and as far west as the gates of Vienna, sending shudders of horror throughout the West. In 1598, King Henry IV of France promulgated the Edict of Nantes, which granted a large measure of religious liberty to his Protestant subjects, the Huguenots. But less than 100 years later, in 1685, King Louis XIV formally revoked this edict, and that resulted in the persecution and death of thousands of his Protestant subjects, forcing as many as 400,000 of them to emigrate to England, Prussia, Holland, and America. Around this same time, in 1662, King Charles II of England passed the Act of Uniformity, requiring all governments and religious officials to adhere to the doctrine, forms of worship, and government of the Church of England, at the risk of fines, imprisonment, and confiscation of property. The passing of this act resulted in the ejection of over 2,000 Puritan ministers from their parishes, known as the Great Ejection, because they refused to abide by the requirements of the act on the grounds that it violated their religious convictions and consciences. Later, during the French Revolution, attempts were made to destroy the church altogether and abolish Christianity once and for all. The same occurred during the 20th century in the former Soviet Union. Those who resisted were fined, imprisoned, banished, and even killed. And there are still such governments today. We can think of North Korea. We can think of China or Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. In fact, I read a report in Fox News some time ago that the Chinese Communist Party has embarked on a 10-year project to actually rewrite the Bible and other religious texts to conform it to communist teachings. And what all this comes down to is attempts by the state and ultimately Satan to demonize, marginalize, and ultimately to extinguish the true Christian faith and the visible church of Jesus Christ. And it's happening in Canada as well. During the pandemic, we witnessed something we've never thought we would ever see in our lifetime. Police officers blocking access to churches, ticketing and even imprisoning faithful Bible-believing Christian pastors for simply preaching the gospel to a gathered congregation of believers. Also, during the pandemic, serious discussions were taking place at various city councils across Canada, including in a city close to where I live, to strip churches that do not obey unjustified, oppressive, and overly restrictive public health orders of their charitable status. And it won't be long before churches will suffer harassment and possibly even persecution for a whole range of issues, so long as we do not conform to the accepted narrative on a whole range. And none of this should surprise us. After man fell into sin, God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. 
but the seed of the serpent would in turn bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that's exactly what we see happening in our world, and that's exactly what we see happening in our text. Satan, by means of the beast, is seeking to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which is the church and ultimately Christ. And he will be successful, at least for a time. For John says that he will make war on the two witnesses, overcome them, and kill them. The church will be dead. Now, does that mean that the church will be completely obliterated? Not at all. The Lord will always preserve to himself a remnant according to the election of grace. There will be faith on the earth when our Lord comes again. But the gospel age as we know it will come to an end. One commentator puts it like this, and I quote, The church as a mighty missionary organization shall finish its testimony. The church itself as a mighty organization for the dissemination of the gospel and regular ministry of the word will be destroyed. End quote. In other words, there will come a time just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ when the church will not be free to witness and even preach. Church buildings will be shuttered, if not completely destroyed. Christian bookstores will be closed. Christian TV and radio programs will cease to be broadcast. The church and what is left of it, and a few, under, few Christians that remain, will be driven underground. And they'll be rendered completely immobile and be regarded by the world, at least, to be completely dead. And so these two witnesses will be killed. But that's not all. For after they are killed, they will be treated with disdain and contempt. And that brings us to our second point. The beast is so full of hatred towards the two witnesses that he's not content merely to put them to death. Instead, John tells us he leaves their bodies unburied, exposed for all the world to see. We read in verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now you notice John here makes reference to a great city. What is this great city? Well, some interpret this literally and say that John here is referring to the actual city of Jerusalem. And that's because John adds that the city was where our Lord was crucified but it's probably best to interpret this spiritually. In fact, John himself does that. He writes that the two dead bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So clearly, John wants us to interpret this great city spiritually rather than literally. Well, if that's so, what does this great city represent? Well, clearly, it represents the unbelieving world. It represents the world in opposition to Christ and his church. And that's confirmed by the fact that John compares the city to Sodom, which, you remember, was a place of gross immorality, and also to Egypt, which was the place where the people of God were persecuted and kept in bondage. And isn't this an accurate description of the unbelieving world? 
And so what John is saying is that the church, represented by the two witnesses, will be killed by the world, the same world that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. What is more, according to verse 9, the nations of the world will leave the bodies of the two witnesses lying on the street for three and a half days, which according to verse 3 is the same amount of time in years that they witnessed since 1260 days is three and a half years. Now again, this is not to be interpreted literally. To leave a body unburied is to commit a great indignity. And that's the point. By leaving the bodies of the two witnesses in the street, the world demonstrates her utter contempt for the church, even after she is dead. But why for three and a half days? Well, commentators have noticed a parallel here to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've said that as Christ was in the tomb for three days, so the two witnesses will remain unburied for three and a half days. In other words, Christ's death provides the pattern for his church. Just as the world killed Christ, so they will kill his church. Just as Christ was dead for three days, so the church will also die. What is more, in verse 2, we read that the church will be persecuted for 42 months, which is three and a half years. Now, instead of three and a half years, we have three and a half days. Seven in the book of Revelation is a symbolic number signifying completion or fullness. And so three and a half represents a complete period of time cut short by half. In other words, a limited but not short period of time. And this tells us, as we learn in verse 11, that the two witnesses will not remain dead forever. They will come, there will come an end. They will be resurrected, just like our Lord was resurrected. But in the meantime, the world rejoices. And we read in verse 10 that those who dwell on the earth, meaning the unbelieving world, will rejoice over the death of the two witnesses, and they will make merry and even send gifts to one another. Now, why will they, why will they do that? Well, John tells us, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The reference here is not to physical, but rather to spiritual torment. In verse 5, we read that if anyone wanted to harm the two witnesses, that fire would proceed from their mouth and devour them. And then in verse 6, we read that the two witnesses had power to shut heaven so that no rain would fall in the days of their prophecy. They also had power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desired. Now, as we saw last time, what John means by this is that the church, through her prayers and through her preaching, called down the judgment of God on the world for her sins. The martyrs in chapter 6 did the same when they cried, How long, O Lord? Evidently, God heard these prayers and sent one judgment after another, as we've also seen. But now that the church is dead, the world believed, however wrongly, that there would be no more judgments, and they would continue to live as they please for many more years to come, and that caused them to rejoice. But dear friends, soon their rejoicing would come to an end, for the church that they thought was dead would come back to life. 
And that brings us to our third and final point. The two witnesses did not remain dead in the street for very long. For we read in verses 11 and 12 these words. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So as with the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose again after being in the tomb for three days, so these two witnesses will also rise from the dead. God will breathe into them the breath of life, just as he did when he created Adam many thousands of years before. And he will command them to come to him, and they will come. And John says they will ascend into heaven in a cloud. Now when will all this take place? Well, remember that this vision occurs between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And that means what John sees here is the resurrection of the just, which will take place immediately prior to the second coming of Christ, which is described in verses 15 to 19. Just before Christ returns, the trumpet will sound, and the souls of believers which had been preserved by God in heaven will be reunited with their bodies. And they, soul and body, shall ascend into heaven in a cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, they will ever be with the Lord. And all of this will take place in full view of their enemies. There will be no secret rapture of the church. The ascension of the church will take place in broad daylight, for all the world to see, even their enemies will see them ascend into heaven to be with Christ. And it will strike great terror in the hearts of those who witness it. For we read in verse 11 that great fear fell on those who saw them. And no wonder. For by rising from the dead, the church militant will become the church triumphant. And that means it's all over for the beast and for the inhabitants of the earth. For three and a half days, they were partying, celebrating the death and destruction of the two witnesses. But now the party is over. Instead of joy, they will experience great terror. But this is just the beginning. For John writes in verse 13 that in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. Now, this is not the first earthquake to occur. The first earthquake occurred back in chapter 6, verse 12, with the opening of the sixth seal. The second earthquake occurred in chapter 8, verse 5, when the angel threw the fire from the altar on the earth. This is now the third earthquake. Now, the earthquake symbolizes the wrath of God as he comes in judgment against his enemies. And it is absolutely devastating. John tells us that a tenth of the city fell. Now, since the city represents the unbelieving world, it appears that 10% of the world would be destroyed. What is more, 7,000 people were killed. Now, since the number seven is symbolic, it's likely that the number of casualties was much higher than that. The point is, the destruction and loss of life is as, as a result of the earthquake was very great indeed. 
But most people survived. And those who did, John says, were afraid. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, since Christ has not yet returned, it appears from this that at least some of the inhabitants of the earth were converted to God. And we see here how patient and how long-suffering God is. Even now, at the 11th hour, just moments before the second coming of Christ, God was willing to receive these wicked sinners unto himself. What about the others? Well, they hardened their hearts in unbelief and perished as a result. Although it's also possible that many of them still gave glory to God, but only because they were terrified and awestruck, not because they actually believed. <coughs> and so we see that what initially appeared to be a great defeat for the church ended up being a great victory. Yes, the church will suffer. Towards the end, her witness will cease completely. She will be as good as dead. But, beloved, God will not forsake her. Not totally. He will breathe life into her again. And he will summon her to his heavenly home, where she will live and reign with Christ forever. And so, dear friends, we have nothing to fear. The closer we come to the end, the more vicious the attacks on the church will be. And as I've already mentioned, based on what we see happening in the world today, it is certain we are heading towards another period of intense persecution. Now, how long this period of persecution will last, or whether it will be the last period of persecution before our Lord comes again, we don't know. Nor do we need to know. For our times are in God's hands, and He's in control, He is on the throne. But, and this is the point that John is making here, although the church will suffer greatly, Although she will even be left for dead, she will survive. And one day, through Christ, her victorious King, she will rise triumphant over sin, over the world, over death and Satan and all of her enemies. And therefore, we have hope. And we will continue to proclaim His word until the very end. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station. If you were blessed by, or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Won't you please take the time to write us a short note? Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. And when you write, please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. And in this booklet, Pastor Neil Pronk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace. And we hope that it may be a rich blessing to you and your family. Please notice that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. 
For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.